Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to begin reading in verse 14 and read through the end of the chapter, through verse 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. Pause while those pages are turning. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for giving us your sacred and holy word, for going to the trouble of recording it and preserving it for us, for giving us the gift of having it in our hands. Oh, Father, we desperately need your help this morning if we're to understand these things, if we're to profit from them, if we're to be changed from them, Father. We must have you, and we must have your work, and we call on you, Father, to do just that, to work by way of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our minds, granting to us understanding, but not simply understanding only, but granting change, change that is eternal. To these ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. This week, we come to the third part of our Advent series, and it's uh, really hard to believe we're at the third part already. There's only one more. Uh, One more Sunday uh, in our season of Advent. I'm going fast. Uh, And our overarching theme in this series has been restoring what is lost. And in the first message, we we, we sought to recover the wanderer. And the awe of God stepping into our realm in the person of Christ Jesus. If you're like myself, you've grown up hearing the birth narratives of Christ all your life. And it's quite easy having hear, hearing, you know, hearing this every, uh, every December uh, or so. It's easy to become, in some respects, kind of hardened to it. I hate to use the word hardened, but uh, we hear it over and over again. And we really lose the sense of of awe and wonder, and in some cases we even have to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves, were we really ever awestruck by it in the first place? The fact that God stepped into our realm in the person of Jesus Christ. So the first message was really devoted to trying to, you know, we're trying to restore what is lost, and we were trying to restore the wonder and, and awe of God stepping into our realm in the person 
of Christ Jesus. And then last week in our second part, we saw that when God steps into our realm in the person of Jesus Christ, he, he doesn't just step in. He comes in bearing a message, doesn't he? And that message is the gospel. And last week we were on about trying to restore something that's lost, namely the clarity of the gospel. There's a lot of confusion over what the gospel is in our culture. And we were seeking to uh, restore the clarity of it. And now this week we pick up right where we left off. Uh, This week we consider the healing that takes place as we embrace the gospel. And let me qualify that statement. Uh, We... We're picking up where we left off as we embrace the gospel. But keep in mind, we're not embracing a a message that's over here in isolation from Christ himself. To embrace the gospel, to embrace the message that Jesus has come to bring and bear upon our ears, is one and the same as embracing him. We have to embrace him because it's very much possible to embrace this message. And have not embraced Christ. So we want to be sure we're embracing him. Now this week we pick up where we left off. In the healing that takes place as we do this. Now on Wednesday nights we've been studying the theological framework. That's underpinning these messages. And technically in theology we call this the mediatorial work of Christ. Now as soon as you say that. Some folks are tempted to say oh. This was sounding good up until now. Uh, Sweetie, can you reach up and change the station? Let's see if something else is on. Mediatorial work of Christ. What's that? Actually, those of you who've been studying this on Wednesday nights, I don't think you're saying that, are you? It's rich and it is amazing. You think about mediatorial. Get rid of the oriole off of there. You have mediator. We sing songs. One of the songs that we sing is entitled Mediator. What's that? A mediator is a person, is someone who comes and stands between two estranged parties. Listen, everyone. No mediator, no hope. No mediator, no salvation. No mediator, all that we got to look forward to is God's wrath. That's it. So it has everything to bear. And because I really personally think that as soon as we start going down this road and start discussing the mediatorial work of Christ, start discussing the mediator as he is revealed in Scripture, namely as he's revealed as prophet, priest, and king, I think the evil one shudders. I actually think this is scary ground for him because it is so rich. And if he can convince us that... you don't need all that tech, that, te- that technical stuff. You don't need that stuff. You don't need any of that. No, we don't want to dare do that. We don't want to dare, dare do that. And the messages that I've been preaching have been underpinned with this. The first message, God stepping into our, into our realm in the person of Jesus Christ. He steps into our realm as the mediator. And the second message, he comes bearing a message. Guess what? That's the work of a prophet. And this morning, as we think about the healing, okay, that's the work of the priest. Now, as we think of Christ as mediator, prophet, priest, and king, let's not think of these things as isolated from one another. Let's not think of it this way. Let's think of one minute Jesus is a prophet, the next minute he's a priest, the next minute he's a king. That's not how it works. We make these distinctions so we can help understand what he's doing. But keep in mind, when Jesus functions as a prophet... He functions as a priestly prophet. 
He functions as a kingly prophet. And when he functions as a priest, he's functioning as a prophetic priest. He's functioning as a kingly priest. And if I might whet your appetite for next week's message, when he functions as a king, this is really good stuff. He functions as a priestly king and a prophetic king. That might not mean a lot to you right now, but I hope in the next 20 minutes it's going to mean everything to you. So we don't understand these things separate and distinct from one another. We see these things. Jesus Jesus never separates himself in pure isolation of these things. He's functioning as all three all the time. Now, there's many places we could go to develop this theme, but I think really, arguably, one of the clearest places in all of Scripture is in Hebrews. We started out in chapter 2. I'm just going to give you a little warning. We're going to be going all over Hebrews uh, this morning. There are several texts we're going to be looking at uh, from Hebrews. And as we do this, there's going to be a lot of details. I don't want you to get caught up in the details. We're, we're looking at a, with a broad brush. One of these days we'll go through Hebrews and we'll go through it with a fine-tooth comb and we'll work out all those details. But this morning, I want you just to follow me through uh, focusing on Christ as a high priest and what that entailed. Let's begin with chapter 2 and verse 17, which we just read. If you'll look there with me, you read these words. The word, therefore... He had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become what? A merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now here we see the necessity of Jesus being made fully human for the express purpose of becoming a merciful and faithful high priest. Okay. What's that? Before we can really go any further in attempting to understand how Jesus functions and conducts himself as a priest, we need to first understand the role and function of the Old Testament priesthood. You see, if we don't understand that, it's not going to mean a whole lot to us. So um, this, what we're going to cover here in the next few minutes is going to be a little bit of a review from, for those who are with us on uh, Wednesday evening But if you'll leave ahead a little bit with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 and and verse 1. In many cases, all you have to do is look over to the next column. In some cases, you might have to turn the page. But in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, we read these words. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men and women in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, here we, we, we learn a lot about the role and work of the biblical priest. Let's, let's, let's take these as they come. First, we see he's chosen from men by God. Do you see that? Now, no one should take this on upon themselves. No one should just say, you know, I think I'm going to be a high priest. I think that's what I'm going to do. And that's an important message today because we live in a day where a lot of people are inclined to do things like that. You don't do that. Look down to verse 4. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when what? Called just as Aaron was. Called by God just as Aaron. Who is Aaron? Aaron is the, uh, is the, was the brother of Moses. He was the first. He was called to be the first high priest of Israel. Okay, so he's called by God, chosen from men by God. He's a man chosen by God. Secondly, Hebrews 5.1, he's appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. 
Now, let's take a couple of minutes and, and sort this out because we have some beautiful imagery of this in the book of Exodus. And if you're a reader of the book of Exodus, then you'll appreciate these comments. When you open up the book, you get started. It's exciting. Uh, there Moses is being raised up to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And then you, you have the tension and the drama between Moses and Pharaoh. And this goes on for some time for, by virtue of the plagues. And then uh, you finally have the Exodus in Moses or in Exodus 14, Exodus 15, you have the song of Moses, and then you get out into the wilderness, and you have some more stories. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Exodus 19, the preparation for the law. And in Exodus 20 and following, we have the law given on Mount Sinai and uh, some case law after that. And then you enter into this territory that you have no idea what to do with. Moses is on Mount Sinai, he's getting all of these instructions about all of these strange things, the tabernacle and all of the specifications of the tables and uh, uh, all of these things. And you, you ask yourself, okay, what does this have to do with anything? Well, I would, one of these days we're going to go through all that, and it's rich. It is really, really rich. And in Exodus 28, I'll just whet your appetite for it. In Exodus 28, we see the story of uh, God commanding Moses to have these priestly garments made. And they were to be carefully made according to these specifications. And one of the pieces, one of the garments, was this breastplate. And on the breastplate were these 12 stones, fancy stones, ornamental stones. And on each stone, a name of the tribe, one of the tribes of Israel's was to be written on each one of the stones. So all the tribes of Israel are wore right here near the heart by the priest. And he was to wear this when he went into the presence of God. Oh, what's going on there? Beautiful imagery. God commands Moses to make, have these things made so that the very names of God's people may be right on the heart of God's high priest as he comes into God's presence. That's gorgeous. And hold on to that. So the high priest comes in bearing the names of God's people as he goes into God's presence. But he also bears God's blessing as he comes to the people. In Numbers chapter 6, we have this famous passage. It's a lot of times pronounced in benedictions at the end of service. Uh, in verse, starting in verse 22, you don't need to turn there, just listen. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying in verse 23, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel. And I will bless them. So the work of the priest is to go into the presence of God, bearing the names of God's people. And he is to go to the people, pronouncing God's blessing. Isn't that beautiful? There's more. The priest also interceded for the people. You get to Exodus chapter 30, verses 7 and 8. We're told that incense was to be burned on this little altar that was to be made in place just before the, uh, the, the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. 
in the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And that, that represented the, the very presence of God in this administration. And there's a veil between those rooms. And just in the other side of the veil is, the, is this, uh, uh, this table, if you will, the altar of incense. And every morning and every evening, the priest was to go in, light this incense. Every morning, every evening, with the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. And on Wednesday night, we looked at this, this, uh, the symbolism of this, and we looked at Psalm 141.2 and Revelation 5.8, and there we learned that the incense was symbolic of prayers being lifted up. It's a symbolic of intercession. If we might tell the Christmas story, at Christmas time it's very common to tell the story of a priest named Zechariah. You know, Zechariah is married to Elizabeth and they're old in age and they've not had any children. And Zechariah is chosen by lot this particular year to do just that, to go into the holy place and offer the incense. And as he's doing so, an angel meets him in there and announces to him that he's going to have a child. He's burning this incense. Now, while Zechariah is in there, he's not just in there lighting, playing with matches. He's praying for the people. So we see this idea of prayer, intercessory prayer. Now we can say so much about this, but let's move on. Back to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. Thirdly, the high priest is to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, the reader of the Old Testament is fully aware of all of this. You're fully aware of all of the battery of, of uh, sacrifices and uh, washings and and purification rituals that take place throughout the Old Testament. Peace offerings, grain offerings, um, offerings for the harvest, and uh, various things that are to take place on various occasions, many of them happening daily. And all of this is to say that the priest functioned as a mediator with a lowercase m. He's between God and man, isn't he, doing these things? God commanded Moses to inaugurate all this activity and all of these ordinances and commands fell under what we call the ceremonial law. Now, if you'll look with me to Hebrews chapter 10, just move forward a few more chapters to Hebrews 10. Starting right with verse 1. Hebrews 10. See, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, they can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Did you get that? It says that after all of this activity, after all these sacrifices, after all this, the conscience of the worshippers are not cleansed. In fact, sin is not taken away. In fact, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of these animals to take away sins. We might stop right here and say, well, what's the point? What is, this, what is this all about? Well, the answer is the work of the priest was typical. In the word typical, think of the word type. 
The work of the priest was a type. He was a, a shadow of things to come. It's not the reality. He was a shadow. So all of this activity that we see going on here was instrumental in not only teaching, but illustrating the true things that awaited fulfillment in Christ. Does that make sense? And all of these ordinances and commands fell under what we call the law. Now, with that in mind, look again at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. There we're told the law has but a shadow of the things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, these sacrifices are being offered all the time. And there are only shadows of the good things to come. Verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They're shadows, but not the true reality. They point to the true reality. Now, a lot more could be said this morning, but I think this is enough in order to build a foundation upon which now we're in a position where we can begin to look at the work of Christ and see how not only he fulfills these things, but in fulfilling these things, bring healing to our sin-torn souls. Amen? Now, I, you know, part of teaching is organizing. You know, as, as a teacher, we have to organize. I have to help you organize all this information. Otherwise, you're going to leave here and say, man, I don't know what that, what was all that about? And as we think about the work of Christ, here's how, I'll tell you how I do it. Here's how, I, this really helps me organize Christ's work as a priest. Think of two simple words, and I think they're pretty easy to remember when you think of Jesus. One is sacrifice. That's pretty easy to remember, right? I have to make it easy for myself. Sacrifice. The second is intercession. And if you will, imagine those as two storage closets, if you will. You've got one named sacrifice, and you put all the information that pertains to sacrifice in that closet, and you've got intercession, and you put all the things that pertain to intercession in the other closet. Now, I think as we think about Sacrifice. We're probably much more familiar with Jesus' work as a sacrifice than we is than we are as His work in intercession. But let's start with sacrifice. If you will back up with me just a couple of verses back to chapter nine and begin looking at verse eleven. Again, don't get caught up in all the details of all of this. We're not doing a verse by verse exposition of this this morning. We're looking with a broad brush. We'll get to that some other time, Lord willing. But if you look at verse 11. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. Verse 12, look at this verse. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by what? His own blood thus obtaining eternal redemption. As we think about reclaiming what is lost, I think we ought to pull over along the road right here. Because I think here is something that is greatly lost to us, and it's the wonder of Christ Jesus, who is God in the flesh, offering his human body as a sacrifice for sin. And we hear that so much that it doesn't affect us like it should. I we need the Holy Spirit's help in these regards, that the God-man would allow sin to be credited to him and then render the penalty of God's wrath in our place. 
We really need to restore the wonder of that. And in some cases, I, again, I'm going to say, I'm not sure we ever had the wonder of that in the first place. We really, again, it comes down to, you know, we are so focused on God's imminent presence with us, so focused on God's gracious presence with us that we lose, really lose fact. We lose, we lose touch with the fact that he is a reigning sovereign God of whom angels veil their faces from. And he's, what is he doing? He comes in the person of Jesus Christ that he might hang on a cross. Naked and in shame. Let's read on. Look at the, We're going to start sealing the healing effects here that I've been promising as we read on. Look at verse 13. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. That's where we get the words, the idea of ceremonial law here. They're ceremonially unclean. Let me read that verse again. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. Sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Now, what's going on here? Well, it seems that verse 13 grants that the sacrificial system provided at least some cleansing on the outside. Do you see that? At least some cleansing on the outside. But listen, everyone, that's not where the problem is. It's not on the outside. Your conscience is not on the outside. The guilt that we experience, it's not on the outside. The shame that we experience, not on the outside. Our rebellious and wayward wills are not on the outside. The disgraceful things that we've done, that we're suffering for, that's all going on in the emotions, in the heart, the very seed of the emotions. That depraved and wicked heart is not on the outside, it's on the inside. And what we have here is an argument that is what we call a lesser to greater argument. If the blood of bulls and goats could provide some cleansing on the outside, how much more the blood of Christ? In the Bible study on Wednesdays, they give you an update this week. One of the things I want to demonstrate is why the blood of Christ is so much uh, more effective than the blood of animal sacrifices. One of the things we want to look at is why is the blood of Christ, why is it such a cleansing agent? We can't go into all of that now, but right now, let's just add Ephesians 5, 2 in the, in the tale where the Apostle Paul says that Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. What is Jesus doing here? He's fulfilling that whole ceremonial system. He's abolishing that whole system. Abolish might not be the right word. He's fulfilling it. There would be a better word. There's no need for it. Because it all pointed to Jesus. It was all instructional. It was all instituted for our illustration. Now, if you look with me, Back to chapter 10 in verse 8. Again, don't try to hang on to every one of the details. It's not the way we learn. We learn a little bit at a time. Chapter, uh, chapter 10, verse 8. 
When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I've come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for, a, for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now, here we're learning that with this once and for all sacrifice of Christ, God does away with the old, right? He ushers in the new in order to establish the new covenant. And this is why I'm a pastor, not a priest, by the way. I'm a pastor. I'm not a priest. That's just not semantics. There's a, there's a strong reason why I'm not a priest. Because Christ has fulfilled the priesthood. And to reestablish what Christ has fulfilled is dishonoring. Absolutely dishonoring. To think that the likes of someone profane like me could add anything to the finished work of Christ is dishonoring. Dishonoring. But with this once and for all sacrifice, Christ has sanctified us. He has sanctified us. What does that mean? To be sanctified is to be made holy. Do you understand that? To be sanctified is to be made holy. It's to be made holy. When a sin-torn soul comes to Christ in saving faith, repents of his or her sins, he or she becomes holy. Have you embraced Christ in saving faith and repented of your sins? If you have, you have become holy. The blood of Jesus takes away, the, washes clean every sin that we've ever committed every stain of sin that we've ever committed that's past that's present that's future so one of the songs that we really like to sing a lot at the coffee hours what can wash away my sins nothing but the blood of jesus what can make me whole again nothing but the blood of jesus if you're in christ this morning your sins have been taken away they've been taken away they're gone now, someone might be sitting here saying, well, they don't, I don't feel like they're gone. You might not feel like they're gone, but they're gone if you're in Christ Jesus. Well, they don't, I don't feel like they're gone. Look to verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For by a single offering, by one single sacrifice, Jesus hanging on the cross, he has kind of helped us out. He has perfected. For a little while, up until the present, waiting on me to see if I'm going to blow it again? No, for all time, those who are being sanctified, those who are being made holy. So when we don't feel like we've been forgiven, we don't feel like we're, our sins are gone, well, then that's when we need to come to the word of God and see it in writing. Can I say this in writing? Yes, verse 14. You got it in writing. If you're in Christ Jesus, listen, if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, when God looks at you, 
He doesn't see that mess of your life. He doesn't see my mess. He sees you gift-wrapped in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when he sees you, he sees absolute purity. White, whiter than any white you can imagine. Now, we could say, say so much more. Let's finish up by looking, saying a few words about intercession. Because this intercession part is really good. Uh, what do we mean by intercession? We use these words all the time. We don't bother to explain them. Some of you wonder, what's intercession? Intercession is the whole idea of pleading for somebody else. You know, intercession is when you, you, know, you, you learn that somebody needs help and you go to God and you start praying for them. Or intercession is when you learn, you, you, know, you, you find somebody, somebody you love, they need Jesus, you intercede and you plead with God in order to save them, in order to give them faith. That's intercession. But back up to Hebrews 7 and verse 25 with me for a moment. See, Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, where we read the words, Consequently, he is able to save to the, to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make what? Intercession. Intercession. <laughs> Here we see that when Jesus ascended into the heavens after his resurrection, he didn't just go up there and sit down. You're not just up there sitting down saying, Whoosh, glad that's all over with. And I think a lot of times when we think of Jesus at the right hand of God the Father, we think of him strictly as a ruler. I don't know that our minds automatically go to intercessor. He's up there constantly interceding for his people before the Father. I mean, if we look into the heavens, what do we see? You know, we look into the heavens, what do we see? I think I see the Lord. What is he doing? Is he just sitting there? No, I believe I, I, believe I think I hear him interceding. Who is he interceding for? He's interceding for all of his people. Well, what do you suppose he's saying? Does the Bible teach us anything about what he's saying? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What do you suppose he's saying to the Father? Well, he told us some of what he was going to say. On the night that he was betrayed, when he was still with the disciples, what did he say? Words are recorded for us in John 14. He says, listen, when I go, I'm going to ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you, even the Spirit of truth. We look into the heavens. I think I see him. What's he doing? He's interceding. What's he saying? He's saying, send the Holy Spirit to my children. So that their hearts can be changed. That's inside, isn't it? So that their conscience can be cleansed. That's inside, isn't it? So that they'll love righteousness. So that they'll hate their sins. That's all inside, isn't it? <laughs> if you're in Christ this morning, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, Jesus interceded for you. He had a conversation with the Father in regards to you. And he said, let's send her the most precious gift that they're ever going to receive. Let's send him... The Holy Spirit. And it's not like God, Jesus is up there arguing with God about this. Some people get that in their heads. No, they're in one accord about it. They're in one accord. It's the Son's good pleasure. It's the Father's good pleasure to send good gifts to his children, the gift of the Holy Spirit. What else is he doing? Well, you remember the high priest bearing the names of God's people with the breastplate? Back in Exodus 28, we didn't know what to do with that. 
Jesus is in God's presence bearing your name. Bearing your name. Isn't that amazing? What else is he doing? Well, you remember on the night he was arrested, he said to his disciples, listen, it's uh, to your prophet, it's to your best interest that I go. Don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm going to go and I'm going to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you can be too. He's expressing his desire to want to be with us. This really strikes Especially when so much of the time we really don't reciprocate that desire too good, do we? But that's grace. You want to grow to love him, start focusing on this. He desires so richly that people that don't even really desire him all that much want to be with him. I will have to change their hearts. But we will. Giving them the gift of the Holy Spirit. We will. Has your heart been changing? It's funny how that thing changes, isn't it? And you're doing things you never thought you'd ever do. Saying things you thought you'd never ever say. Being interested in doing things you never thought you would do. What else is he doing? I'll give you one more. He's advocating. What's an advocate? An advocate's one who pleases the cause of another. John tells us in 1 John 2, 1, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous. As we think about healing, one of the most tormenting things I can think of in regards uh, to uh, healing is that constant torment when the evil one accuses us or when our flesh accuses us. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's awful. When you got this little voice in your head going over and over and over things that you've done, and it piles that guilt on there. That's tormenting. Why? Oftentimes, because we're guilty, aren't we? Sometimes in counseling, when I'm counseling folks, they'll come in and I'll say, man, I feel so guilty. And I'll say, well, why? What happened? They'll tell me what happened. And they'll say, well, what do you think? I said, well, you, you are guilty. That's why you feel that way. <laughs> You're supposed to feel that way. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. Boy, the devil can have a field day with that. So can our flesh. Because we are guilty. But we have an advocate. He's taken that away. He's before God, bearing your name. And all God has to do is, if he could possibly forget, all he has to do is look at the holes in the hands of our advocate and the holes in his feet, and the scar on his side. It's been punished. It's finished. It's taken care of. That's intercession. What healing? We could go on and on and on, but we have to wrap up sometime. What healing? What healing there is in Christ Jesus? I mean, does this make you want to bow and surrender and service to him as you think about these things? Receive this healing in Christ? I mean, I mean, the big question for us really at this juncture is has we, have we really received him? Have we received him in saving faith? Because if we don't receive him, none of this is going to do us any good. If we've not received him in a simple trust, if we're not clinging to him in trust, this isn't going to benefit us at all. So if you come to him, if you pleaded with him to save your sin-torn soul, and you 
are you trusting in him to take your sin away? That's the question. If you are, this healing is yours. <laughs> I, I love saying that part. The healing is yours. If you haven't done this, what could you possibly be waiting for? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. You've revealed yourself in such a rich and powerful way that, Father, we, we put our best foot forward, but, Father, we can't even begin to do any justice to what you've done, Father. One day we'll sit and listen to you talk about it, Father, and, oh, then our hearts will be so rocked. Father, we thank you that even now, Father, our hearts are changed by this. It really does rock our souls, Father. And, oh, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the great healing that we, that we have in Christ Jesus. And we ask, oh, Father, that you would graciously apply this healing to each one of us and to uh, those who are not present with us this morning for whatever reason, Father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> And I invite you to stand as we sing our closing song. Somebody that, uh, the person who wrote this, I believe, understood God's grace very well, which would be John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. And uh, let us love and sing and wonder. Appropriate thing to sing of in light of that sermon. Mm -hmm.